like a rigged scale of justice, life in society and within cultures is inherently unfair. But what if there are ways to live true to yourself while also being compassionate to everyone? And is a just world even possible? Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. I'm Scott Ely. Empathetic Distortion, Rigging the Scales of Justice. Conversation filled the courtroom as the judge ascended to his bench. Perched like a king on his throne, he removed his glasses and rubbed the bags under his eyes. The slamming of his gavel made the brass scales of justice rock like a seesaw, seeking equilibrium in concert with the quieting of the courtroom. Will the jury foreperson please stand? For the case of Smith versus Payne, March 2nd, 2009, has the jury reached a unanimous verdict? The judge looked at the short, bald man now standing in front of the jury, holding in his hands the fate of Mary's life. Before answering, his eyes darted to the plaintiff's table and back. Y- yes, Your Honor, he said. Staring intently at him from the table was Mrs. Smith, a middle-aged woman squeezing a handkerchief soaked in tears. For most of the last hour, her steady whimper reminded the courtroom of why they were all here. Her face was both sadness and anger, depending on the angle. The redness in her eyes looked permanent. A picture of an infant sat on the table in a frame facing the jury. Mary Payne sat at the defense table. Younger than Mrs. Smith, she wore a formal white blouse with her blonde hair wrapped tightly in a bun. Although she could feel all the eyes in the courtroom moving between her and the head juror, her posture was flawless. It was the stature of someone accepting of whatever fate was coming. Mary couldn't help but notice an unusual and consistent rhythm in the woman sobbing, like a whistle playing the same note over and over. Inhale, whistle, exhale. Inhale, whistle, exhale. Holding her gaze steadily upon the head juror to avoid looking directly at the cameras, she was glad no one could read her thoughts. The image of the baby was hammered into her mind like a six-inch railroad spike. The mother's whimpers increased the intensity of her recollection, as if the spike had been heated in a fire before it was slammed into her head. She grimaced, now fighting her own maternal instincts to comfort the woman. The judge nodded to the head juror. Like a well-trained dog, the juror presented the judge with the verdict. Without expression, the judge read the paper. Returning the verdict to the clerk, the judge's dog prepared to bark out the decision to the public. Mary witnessed the ritual with silent reverence to the sound of the whistling cries, trying to imagine what she would do in the mother's position. Would she cry? Would she have the patience to wait for the judge to decide the defendant's fate? Or would she crave to avenge her dead baby right there in the courtroom? As the head juror began to speak, time stopped, bodies froze, and every sound, even the crying, was sucked into oblivion. To Mary's eye, the scales of justice appeared to sway to a breeze that wasn't there. For this moment, the world was in perfect balance, of nothingness. The jury finds the dependent, Mary Payne, 
cradled in an armchair made of shiny velvet, Mary touched the scar on her left cheek. The puckered sensation under the fingers always provided a quick reminder. She never liked how the armchair looked, but the comfort made her bones ache less. Arms in her lap, Mary looked down at the brown age spots sprinkled from elbow to fingertip. Like rings on a cut tree, seeing them gave her perspective. Small photos covered the walls like stars on a bright night. Each one depicted Mary with different groups of people. A picture larger than any other hung in the center of the room in a silver frame. It showed Mary standing in the middle of a group of people in a pose of celebration. This Mary from another time, another life really, wore a smile instead of deep wrinkles and a scar. But it was the loose photo inserted in the lower right corner of the frame that drew her gaze. A baby curled up in a white crib with tubes coming out of his nose. And on the desk beneath the photo sat an antique mirror, badly cracked and repaired. The mirror leaned against an old brass scale, reflecting uneven sunlight back into Mary's face. On the side of the scale that drifted down, the cup was dented and chipped, and the bar to the right of the fulcrum was badly bent. Mary caught a glimpse of herself in the mirror. Time's up, she thought, before uttering the command, call. She'd never gotten comfortable just thinking the commands. Speaking aloud still felt better to her. But no matter the method, none of it felt real to her. It felt like years since she'd gotten the first mandatory nanotechnology injection, but no amount of time ever cured her discomfort. A voice inside Mary's head whispered, ID verification. It was one of those voices that sounded so perfect that it made Mary feel uncomfortable. She'd opted to have it not sound like herself. It was already strange enough. Sighing, Mary closed her eyes for a few seconds, sitting perfectly still. She imagined if she could see herself in the mirror, it would look like she was meditating. She'd forgotten how difficult using the system had been at first. Now it was just part of her. Good day, Mrs. Payne. How can we help you? Mary looked towards the door as if she might get caught stealing from the cookie jar. Mary replied, uh, Good day. I'm calling regarding the life extension procedure. I'd like to... Sorry, I need to cancel. The voice replied in the same unsettling warmth with no time to waste. All right, Mrs. Payne, please let me remind you that if you cancel now, we won't reimburse your UBI for the amount spent up to today's date, October 21st, 2042. We are also unable to hold your position on the waiting list if you decide you want the procedure in the future. This procedure requires access to rare elements which are strictly rationed. So the approximate waiting time for people who qualify as of today is 7 years and 27 days. Please confirm you understand that you'll move to the bottom of the list if you continue with this cancellation. Mary wished the voice would start talking about something else, perhaps like the warm weather, her favorite food, or some nice memory that she had. After all, the voice, it, her, whatever it was, knew all of these things. After some time passed in silence, Mary said, Yes, I understand. Thank you, Mrs. Payne, the voice replied. Your cancellation was successful. 
Have a nice day. Mary was alone again. She tried not to think about how the nanotechnology inside of her worked, or even what in the hell it was. To keep her thoughts from going down that path again, she replied, Back in my time, you'd at least have allowed me to say goodbye before hanging up. A familiar clack of heels gave her some comfort to have a human guest arriving. Being alone with her inner voice always made her feel even more isolated. Mary repositioned herself in the armchair for her expected guest. A moment later, the room doors slid open. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for coming, Mary said. Sarah's smooth brown hair made Mary wonder just how many brush strokes it took to bring it to that perfection. She wore a simple yet tasteful formal black skirt and a white shirt buttoned all the way up to her neck. A lapel pin of the country's flag announced both her high rank as well as the nature of her visit. The agency, handling universal basic income, or lifeline as most sarcastically called it, was one of the few remaining branches of the government which employed humans. Even still, it wasn't common for those humans to actually meet up with the human citizens whom they provided with a steady free income every month. The world has gotten so strange, Mary thought. So she was glad this was one of the special cases justifying an in-person meeting. The door closed and she sat in the opposite chair, shooting Mary an urgent look as she did. Why would you do this, Sarah said. After all the progress we've made on your case, I just, I just cannot understand your logic. Mary took her time to answer. She was always careful in her speech. But she couldn't ignore that with her increasing age and her health declining, filtering out the right words seemed harder than before. So she kept her reply simple. This isn't easy for me, Sarah, but it's something I have, Sarah interrupted. You're 86 and you're dying. Do I need to remind you of how hard it was to get you on that list? Regardless that your last name is Payne. And if I wasn't your UBI manager, well, there's just no chance the government would consider someone of your condition. Sarah exhaled loudly and continued. And now, after almost five years of making sure you get to the top of the list, you want to spend your entire UBI savings investing in some kind of scientific research instead of your life extension procedure? You do know there's no second try if you quit, right? It would take at least another six years to get you back to the top, if you can even live that long and replenish your UBI. Mary recalled the exact time frame the voice told her, seven years and 27 days. She repeated Sarah's words in her head, if she could even live that long. My life isn't worth anything compared to this, Mary replied, trying to hold back a raspy cough. I owe it to myself and to him. I owe it to the world. I need to see this to the end. What do you think you owe to that boy? Sarah snapped back, pointing at the picture. Your chance to save him was half a century ago, and you didn't take it. But at least you can save yourself with this procedure. Why do you have that picture anyway? Doesn't it make you uncomfortable just seeing that poor baby with those tubes sticking out? This is the only photo I have, Mary said, staring vacantly towards the photo. He'd be 40 this year. I can't... Sarah cut her off. Why is it every time there's life on the line, you have to go and do something crazy? Mary took a deep breath. Please stop calling me crazy because you don't agree with my decisions. 
you're overstepping, Sarah. You've never been put in the position to have to choose on which track to send the trolley, especially when you can't possibly understand the weight of the consequences. Sarah scrunched her face in confusion, saying, Trolley, what are you talking about? You had that little boy's life in. This time, Mary cut Sarah off instead. If forced to choose, hundreds of lives are worth more than a single life, Sarah. Even if that single life is the life of a small baby, people get blinded by empathy for the single victim they can identify instead of rationally having compassion. Stalin supposedly said, a single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. It sounds harsh, but this is the reality of human nature and the way we can be blinded by empathy. No one ever pauses to think about this, so they make the easy decision, the selfish decision that makes them feel good, not the decision that's best overall. I realize it's hard for you to understand if you've never been forced to choose in the way I have. Sarah's stare made Mary feel like a monster. The Stalin quote was probably a bad idea, but she ignored the pain of the look and continued. This decision should be much easier. This time, it's not the life of a child on the line, only the life of an 86-year-old. I'm sorry, Sarah, but I won't change my mind. My UBI savings must go for this research. Me living a couple years longer changes nothing. But if this research succeeds, billions will finally know the truth. One old person exchanged for billions shouldn't give anyone pause about which track to choose. The world is not just, Sarah. And if there's a God, she is not just either. Nobody can change that. Society is like a set of broken or rigged scales that people constantly try to balance, even though it's inherently impossible. Sarah huffed and shook her head as she replied, what is this research you want to fund with all your UBI savings anyway? And how is this action supposedly going to tip these scales? Mary looked down, realizing the weight of her next words. The money is going to Sam's research. She's on the brink of a great discovery. She told me she told me she discovered something shocking, and that's why the government canceled her project. But someone informed me of how I can help her continue her research without the government. But without UBI, Sarah stood up and started pacing around the room. She turned back to Mary and raised her voice saying, you're trading your life for that? I, I can't believe this, I can't. Do you know why the government canceled your granddaughter's research? From what I understand, it could destroy the world. How do you figure that will help billions of people, you say? Besides, you don't really think the government will allow you to transfer your UBI to her. She's blacklisted because of that stunt she pulled by breaking into her laboratory. So without the right authority, this transfer is illegal. I don't even know why you're telling me this. As your UBI representative, I'm supposed to report, wait a minute, that's the only reason you involve me, isn't it? Because you know you can't do this on your own. Yes, I need you, Sarah. Mary replied, then grew quiet. You can help me transfer my UBI to Sam's account. Same as your clearance got me onto the life extension upgrade list. Sarah stood motionless, her mouth agape. You're kidding me, right? That's it. We're making the final transfer for your procedure right now. It felt like it took everything Mary had to stand up from the chair without looking as feeble as she felt. 
She walked towards Sarah and touched her arm, her heart racing. Finally, she spoke. Sarah, I pulled myself off the list just before you arrived. It's over. But if you really want to help me, then please help me help my granddaughter. I just need the transfer to be clean and... Sarah's body tensed as she cut Mary off, saying, What? You pulled yourself off the list? Why can't you understand? Mary asked. Even after all these years, you can't see past your self-imposed boundaries. Sam dedicated her education and life to discover the truth. I would never have imagined I might live to find out the truth about this world we live in. She just needs our help. Me living another 10 or 20 years means nothing. If Sam finishes her research, everything could change. Why is it so hard for you to see beyond one life? Empathy is distorting your vision. Sarah stepped away from Mary's embrace and, in one violent swoop, she hooked her fingers into the brass chains of the scales of justice and spiked it onto the ground between them. Mary screamed and stepped backward. Tripping on the table's leg, she went down hard. Feeling a sudden flush of pain, she clutched her chest. The last thing she saw before passing out was the scale, tipped over on its side in front of her in a crumpled mess, like a car smashed in an accident. The electric ambulance was nearly silent as it raced towards the hospital. Sarah held Mary's thin arm. It gave her some comfort, at least, that she still felt warm. Tears welled up in her eyes as she said, Please, Mom, wake up, please. Through the windows, the landscape raced by. It was still unnerving to Sarah to see ambulances with lights but no siren. Since overriding the AI and self-driving cars became illegal about 10 years ago, there were almost no car accidents anymore. And she now realized it was even stranger to be in one, silently speeding down the highway. Sarah thought about her daughter, Sam. She was so much like Mary. Unlike Sarah, who stuck to the rules, Mary and Sam always had to do things differently. So many times in her life, she felt like someone, perhaps God or maybe some joker at the hospital, gave her the wrong mother and wrong child. For a long time, she couldn't find the strength to forgive Mary for what she did. Finding out, in the most public way possible, at the age of 16, that her own mother had caused a one-year-old baby to die, had split her in half. The pain dragged on for years, leading to her parents' divorce and what seemed like endless piles of hate mail. Later, when she'd finally come to terms with it, she started her own family and had Sam. But it wasn't long after when she started reliving a new breed of chaos all over again with Sam's craziness, from public rallies to doing her PhD with controversial professors, to disappearing into the woods for two years, and more. And then, of course, there was Sarah's father, the true black sheep of the family. Only their family name kept them from complete excommunication. How was she the only sane one among them? Sarah's eyes locked onto the scar on Mary's cheek, refreshing the mental wounds. More tears rolled down her cheeks as she said, why do you all continue to do this to me? Mary's plea to help Sam echoed in Sarah's head, making her wonder when was the last time she even saw her own daughter. 
Was it possible that she was the one who was wrong here? Was her mom right that the world wasn't just? Or that God, her God, wasn't just? She'd always felt that noble actions would be rewarded and evil actions punished. This just felt like it should be right. But that would make her whole family wrong and only her right. And was she blinded by empathy and not compassionate in a rational sense as her mom had accused her? Had she been wrong about this and about her family her whole life? Either way, she was running out of time. The paramedics told her it was a serious heart attack. There were no guarantees she would even make it to the hospital alive. All right, mom, you have me. I'll join this wretched family of criminals and crackpots. As if meditating with her eyes open, Sarah verified her identity and instructed the government's interface to transfer all of Mary's remaining UBI to Sam. Waiting for the confirmation, Sarah squeezed her legs so hard that her knuckles turned white. Both her body and her mind struggled against this illegal activity, as if her immune system was defending against a deadly virus. She'd spent much of her professional career combating people using platforms like Silk to enact illegal money transactions and other misuse of UBI. And now she was one of them. At least human bloodlines still have some value in a transhuman world, she thought. Turning back to her mother, all that was left was for Mary to confirm, or for someone to confirm on her behalf. Her body shuddered as she tried not to think about the repercussions of getting caught. Sarah waited for the paramedic to turn his back as he checked Mary's vitals. As soon as he did, she leaned down quickly until her face was just inches away from her mom's. She gently peeled back Mary's eyelid with her thumb and index finger. A small tear rolled down Sarah's face, landing on Mary's scar. Seconds later, the voice in her head told her the transfer was confirmed, so she leaned back before the paramedic could turn back around. The tension in her body slackened as she squeezed Mary's hand. It's done, Mom, she thought. Now, you don't need to wake up if you don't want to. Not guilty. The entire courtroom gasped. The desperate mother ran toward the judge as he slammed his gavel repeatedly for order. Grabbing the scales of justice resting on the judge's table, Mrs. Smith screamed at the jury. How could you? She murdered my baby. She could have saved him, but she let my boy die. As she finished the sentence, she whirled away from the jury and released the scales into the air. Mary watched the scene unfold, unable to move. The brass scales rotated as if in slow motion as they flew straight towards Mary, breaking on the table with a loud crash. Before she could raise her arm, one of the cup's edges slashed across her cheek before clattering to the ground behind her. With a scream of pain, she grabbed her cheek. Blood turned the sleeve of her white blouse into a deep red. Through a mix of tears and blood, Mary saw the security guard drag Mrs. Smith out of the courtroom as she screamed, she killed my baby, she killed my baby. With the woman gone, the rest of the chaos in the courtroom faded away. A tall man with a well-trimmed beard appeared in front of Mary. Stretching out his hand, Mary let him hold a handkerchief to her cheek to stop the bleeding. 
Even with his hand so close to her face, she could see the huge scar on his wrist. If this leaves a scar, he said, I guess we'll have one more thing in common. But fresh tears began again, and her husband hugged her close. Finally, she pulled back from him and said, Was I wrong? I think they'd all crack open champagne if I was dead. Stop it, Mary, Theodore said. You did everything you could for that baby to stay alive and for that heart not to go to waste. You had another charity lined up, but he just ran out of time. Your organization should never have signed on to that case anyway. You were right to shut it down. It wasn't in your charter. Don't let yourself forget about the bigger picture here. They found you not guilty for a reason. I know, I know, Mary replied, shaking her head and speaking softly. I'd do it the same again if I were stuck back in my own shoes. I know the letters are irrelevant, but hearing that mother cry, I just, I just can't imagine being in her shoes if that had been Sarah. Mary, Theodore replied, I've seen the hate mail, but I've also seen the love letters. Your decisions saved that neighborhood and impacted hundreds of children. You're the hero none of the critics would have the guts to be, and this verdict vindicates you. Mary nodded without conviction. They walked silently toward the exit without speaking. Mary's face was contorted in silent pain. A guard escorted them the last few steps and opened the doors. A thick crowd of people, reporters, picketers, and the morbidly curious, clamored around the doors, waiting for Mary at the top of the stairs. Earlier that morning, She'd done her best to find peace with the possibility of being imprisoned for life. She now realized that that had been a paper-thin veneer masking the fear. The human desire for freedom was strong. She took a long breath of fresh air. Mary looked out at the angry faces. Signs stuck out of the crowd like cacti. One sign said, Unholy Mary, pray for your sins. Then another in blood red on a white background. She has no heart, so she took his. Feeling weak in her knees, Mary tried to ignore the anger focused on her. She had to face it head on. Just as she was about to step outside, a young man snuck out of the crowd and ran straight at her. Startled, she took a step backward, but Mary quickly found herself in the embrace of the unknown young man. She stood frozen, letting the arms hug her tighter and tighter. Thank you, lady. Thank you for helping us. My mom says I'm alive because of you. As the cops took the young man away, Mary smiled, locking eyes with him. Theodore grabbed her hand and squeezed it. Even death has a purpose, he said. She looked up at him and smiled, knowing he was right, and knowing, finally, that she had been right as well. I suppose you would know that better than anyone, she said. He gestured down towards the bag in his opposite hand that he tilted open so she could see inside. Inside the bag were the crumpled scales of justice, dented and bent, with a trace of blood still fresh on one of the cups. She smiled, then let go of his hand. Standing together, but apart, they stepped out into the fray. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, 
original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.